Well, welcome to week six of our series on the law. I have at least one more. I think I probably have two more. Um, but we're kind of wrapping up one of our mini-series today. Uh, for those who are watching online, there should be a handout there in the, uh, embedded in the video there. For those who are here, then there's some in the back. I've, th- there is at least one person who's been asking me for my teacher's notes, so if anybody obviously ever wants those, let me know. And also, if you have questions you want me to handle, because I love discussion, but I'm finding discussion with this setup is just more difficult. Um, so I'm doing more, a little more monologues and maybe opening up for questions at the end. But if there are things you want me to make sure I address, we can address them one-on-one in the week or just for the next week, then I'm happy to do that. And I've done that a couple times. So I basically presented our topic basically for the last two weeks and then today has been we all understand that we love God's law. We, we want to do what he says. So the question has been for these, for these three-week miniseries is what does he require of us? Uh, particularly, so the New Testament's kind of easy. There's not really a lot of disagreement there. Maybe exactly what's meant at times. The question is, is, is that all we have? How much do we turn to the Old Testament and find what God requires of us today in 2021? Las Vegas, probably most Gentiles, right? Um, and so I've kind of, I've said there's a, there's a spectrum of continuity and discontinuity among evangelical. People who really believe the Bible, they're not liberal theologians, they, they believe miracles, they believe what God says, they disagree on exactly what that means. And so I started with the, what I call the middle position, our position, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, and what the Reformed Baptists would also share. And that's essentially that we find in the Mosaic Law. So I, I talked last week that there are laws before Moses, right? There's creation ordinances. Uh, you can find maybe a support for capital punishment with Noah. So there's things before Moses that presumably would stay. The focus has really been on the Mosaic Law. When God met with Israel on Mount Sinai and gave them the Ten Commandments along with hundreds of other laws, that's the question. Something has shifted. I think we can all agree something is transformed by the coming of Jesus. The question is what and how much. So exactly what does that mean? And, wh- and particularly what glasses do we use to, to figure it out? That's, that's probably my biggest concern. And basically for Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists, uh, we see in the Mosaic Law moral laws, which we see summarized in the Ten Commandments. So by saying moral, we mean they're good for all people in all times, so we would fall under the Ten Commandments. And everything else in the Mosaic Law, things that are not on the tablets of stone, we would see as classify as civil or ceremonial, but basically things that had to do with the context of Israel at the time, and they're gone. However, we believe that you can and should find moral principles within those laws. And then the one tweak then that comes up in discussion is the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, we see is changing from Saturday to Sunday. Right? Saturday it was the seventh day of the week, of the creation week. Uh, in our tradition, we find we, it's changed to either the first, or we might call the eighth day, the new creation, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We see examples in the New Testament that the day of worship started being on the first day of the week. So that's our position. 
People who are to the right of us on, on my scale, more discontinuous than us, New Covenant theology, dispensationalists, some Lutherans. Um, the, the one I quoted was a Lutheran. I'm not sure everyone agrees with his position. But their shift is they don't see this threefold nature of the law, at least as concretely as we do. They, they see it's a Mosaic covenant. It's a whole law, a whole covenant. So either that whole law stays or the whole law goes at the extremes. And so they, so what falls out for them is they don't see things, they don't assume that if something's in the Old Testament that it continues. They want to see it in the New Testament. I, I need to see it in the New Testament to confirm, yep, okay, that law stayed. Okay, that law stayed. Okay, that law stays in this way. So they're focused, they start with the New Testament and work backwards. And so for some of them, what falls out is the fourth commandment, Sabbath, because they don't see it literally... Um, you know, ex explicated in the New Testament. They also question, well, if it's the moral law, why would it change day? So that they don't believe the Sabbath is a moral commandment. Or they might just say that it's a moral commandment in the sense that we believe in Christ, we rest from our works in him. They would point to Hebrews 4 for that. Um, and so, so they say, basically, I want to follow the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. And they, and they would, many of them would say that the New Testament goes far beyond what the Ten Commandments even saw. They, they see the Ten Commandments as, as quite external in, in governing the political behavior of Israel, where the true nature of the law in the heart wasn't part of that covenant. That's their position, or, or some of theirs. That's the more extremes, perhaps. So today, I want to concentrate more on the, the left side of the board, those who have continuous views. And we could talk about lots of things. We could talk about dietary laws. We could talk about keeping the Sabbath as Saturday. But the area I want to focus on, just to focus somewhere, is on what's called theonomy. And that is basically not just keeping the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, but keeping the civil laws from the Old Testament and believing that we ought to continue and follow those today more than uh, most Presbyterians would see. Um, and so for, for some of the background for all this, well, I mean, why did I do all this? Like I said at the first week, there's a couple of studies I've done in the last couple of years. I've kind of shelved the theological study. I've just used this because of the differences like this is why we come to different positions on things like social justice. Because we look at our Bibles differently. We look at Israel differently. When, you know, on the social justice debate, if you remember, for those who were there, I, I also had a spectrum. For those who are pro-social justice and those who are anti, it's not very dark, is it? or skeptical of social justice being talked today. People on the left side, more pro, guys like Tim Keller, they're gonna to turn to the Old Testament and say, but it's clear that God cares for the widow, for the orphan, for the immigrant. And we know God's heart from the Old Testament, so therefore, we ought to be working for those kind of laws today. And then it's funny, people, some of the people on the anti side, some will be like John MacArthur, He's over here, right? That's Old Testament. That's Israel. Let's wait for the millennial kingdom to worry about that stuff as a society. He agrees as individual Christians, we have to work for those things. But the world is not the church's place. Other people on this side, like Doug Wilson, who we'll talk about today, are on the opposite side up here. But they're joined together in social justice. And they would say, wait a minute. I, I care about the Old Testament. I think we should implement those laws. But those commands are in conflict with what social justice philosophy is today. And so it's interesting that you can have people who, are, who turn to the Old Testament continually 
in a continuous way and still fall on different sides of the social justice. So all of that was in the background as I did social justice, and I kind of shelved the topic. Another big one I think that, that sets the stage why this should matter to us is uh, homosexuality and, and other sexual ethics like that. That comes up a lot. So as we as a church, and our, our, obviously this is going to be more and more and more of attention. I mean, this is perhaps the way persecution is really going to hit our church in America and the Western world. As we stand against gender identity, homosexuality, many people will accuse us, wait a minute, you don't eat kosher anymore. Why are you turning to Leviticus 19 to show that God is against homosexuality? And I've got to say, a lot of Christians and Reformed Christians don't have a good answer. They do not have a good way of saying why I believe that Old Testament command, but not another. And so it, it, it's not so important that I get you to nail down where you are. I, I, it's a tough study. And, and, and again, if you don't think it's a tough study, I don't think you've looked at it or thought about it hard enough. Very good Christians over the centuries have disagreed on these things. What I really want to, to prompt you is, is a desire to study these things so that you kind of know how to handle, handle your word, handle the word of God, um, not to get to specific positions so much. That's not, that's not the point. So let us pray. Our Father, we pray for your illumination as we open your word and we discuss it. Help us to humble ourselves under your perfect, righteous, and true word. May the Holy Spirit be with us as we do so. Help us not to focus on the law in a wrong way, and yet help us to love it, to delight in it. Um, humble us that there is much we probably don't understand. Thank you for such a deep, rich, and a perfect word. Uh, we pray that this discussion would only draw us closer to Jesus. I'm asking in his name. Amen. Still haven't opened my teacher's notes. All right. Um, okay, so I, I'm quite new uh, at theonomy. I, I don't know much about it. I didn't have the break I thought I was going to have to prep for the study, so I meant to bring the book that Scott gave me, a Bonson's book on theonomy of Christian ethics. It's a really huge one. Um, and it kind of shook up the Reformed world back in the 70s, and it's continued. Um, I, so I, I know this church has a history with theonomy. Some of you have a history. I don't have that history. So if you think I'm pointing to some personality or issue, I'm not, because I'm ignorant of it. I'm really approaching this purely as a biblical study. And I, I have found at certain campsites with people in this church, this is a sensitive topic. So let me encourage you not to jump to whatever your experience is. I'm not saying they're illegitimate, that they're irrelevant, because the fruit of the tree matters. But you, let's not be guilty of what's called an ad hominem. Let's not, let's not attack the people who, who hold certain positions or, or whatever. We, at some point, we need to take their arguments for what they are, and we need to try to deal with them biblically. So this is very at a basic level. We're not going to get into a lot of detail. Because the issue is, if you can unlock the theonomic key and, and open up more of the Mosaic law to consideration and application, now you have years and years of work to do to exactly know how to apply those laws. Fine. And there's a lot of disagreement among theonomists. But I just want to consider back here, like, can you unlock it? Like, is this a right glasses to view your Old Testament? Um, so just 
continuity, I've, I've jumped ahead of myself, continuity in general, not, not just theonomy, but we started with week one on delighting the law of God. So Psalm 19, Psalm 119, so many other Old Testament references and new that talk about the law of God in such magnificent, adoring, loving terms um, that that's how we know truth. That's how we're instructed. That we find our joy there. Can you still say those? Because when those things were written, they were talking about the Mosaic Law. At least the whole Word of God, but Mosaic Law was part of it. So the, the real question from people on this side of the board is, who, what gives you the right to change? Like, are you more righteous than God? Are you more just than God? If these laws are just and righteous and true, how can you change them? Like, what, what would possibly give you the chance to change those? And I, I think if you discount that argument too quickly, um, it's to our ruin. That, that's a strong argument. If, if, if God's character is seen in his law, like, even twisting it, even changing the Sabbath day from one to another, what has happened? How, how has that reflected God's character in one sense, but changed? And I'm not saying it can't, but we can't be the arbiters of that. I think that's probably the bottom line is we need some kind of scriptural key, scriptural lenses to use. Otherwise, we're going to kind of do what we want with God's law. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Okay, at all times, this is the idea of a moral law. Here's some verses. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. These are all from the New Testament. We uphold the law in the New Testament. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. We ought to, that's love. Some people, these guys want to say, it's not about law anymore, it's about love, man. Well, love of God is to keep his commandments. Matthew 5, not a jot or tittle will pass away from the law. That's pretty extensive. The law, at least people would argue, that Jesus is talking about is the Mosaic law, the whole thing. Not a jot or tittle will pass away. And not until his death, until heaven and earth pass away. First Peter 1, we say, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's quoting Leviticus 11. How is holiness defined? If you want to be holy, you have to be holy as I am holy. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Substitute law there for scripture. I'm not saying we should, but that scripture includes law, and the law they had at that time was the Mosaic law, right? That's the law they had. They didn't have much, much in the New Testament by then. All of it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. So let's not skip our Old Testament too quickly. All of it is profitable to us. Exactly how it's profitable, we might disagree. But let's agree that it's profitable. And let our study reflect the fact that we think it's profitable and the way we talk about it. It also applies to all people. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. So that sounds Jewish, right? It speaks to those who are under the law. The Jews were under the law. That the whole world may be held accountable to God. Well, now the whole world is being held accountable by this law. Romans 3. Romans 7, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous as good. All the law is holy, righteous, and good. Deuteronomy 4, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for, that, 
For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples. So one, one purpose of the Mosaic Law, and I think we can say about all law, was to display God's righteousness and wisdom to the other nations. So as the other nations looked at Israel and the laws that God had set up and they would live in conformity to those, there was a, there was a wisdom for them as well. So if you say the Old Testament, the, the Mosaic Law was just for Israel, that wouldn't make any sense because there would be no wisdom to display to other nations. If, if there wasn't something in that law to be lived and displayed to other people, uh, then these verses make no sense. This is the argument. When they hear all these statutes, they will say, these Gentile nations, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to, to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon them? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And they would tie that into Romans 13. We looked at that a few times this last couple of years. Romans 13 says that the government is put there in part to encourage good and to punish evil. Well, what standard is a civil government today? What standard is Las Vegas or America or Great Britain to be supposed to use to fulfill Romans 13? If they don't have a God's law to turn to, what is it? What is assumed there when Paul is saying these things? Verse Timothy 5, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where did Paul get that? Two or three witnesses. Right? That's in the Mosaic Code, and it's not in the Ten Commandments. It's not in the moral law. How is, how is Paul, and that's just one of many examples, how is Paul assuming this concept of two or three witnesses? Or is, it, or is he just establishing new law? By the Spirit in him, he's establishing a new law we've never heard of. That would be their argument. All right, so now we get into theonomy. So there's a whole spectrum of theonomy. I'm going to kind of talk about one end and the other, kind of divide it into two camps. These are my words. I'd probably offend some theonomists by saying mild and hardcore. But I want you to see that there is a spectrum. People use the word theonomy in many ways. Now the word theonomy, here, theos and nomos. It means God's law. That's all it is. If you're a Christian, you're a theonomist, right? In, in a generic sense, at least. Because uh, your only other option is autonomy. I make my own laws. And that's probably the most important thing is, as we consider this subject, let's let God be the, the decider, right, um, of, of how we apply these things. So at, at the far end, we'd say, you either are a theonomist or, or you believe in autonomy. I make my own law. And that's where these guys get accused a lot, like, I have the spirit. I can just decide what love to God and love to neighbor look like because I have the spirit and you need to trust me. There's really no book you can come to me. There's no verses you can hold me to account. I stand before God and God alone. That would be at the extreme of that side. And basically they would say they presume God's commands continue unless the New Testament specifically abrogates, modifies, changes in some way. So they are going to assume continuity until the New Testament tells me otherwise. So I don't need a New Testament verse on whatever subject. I have the Old Testament until I see it changed. That's the basic idea. So some of them would just base, they would call themselves general equity theonomists. So we go back to our first study a couple weeks ago. So in chapter 19 of the Westminster, civil or judicial laws are laws that are tied to the, the political nation of Israel. 
And it says, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. So what does that mean? So the commands were given to Israel as a particular people. So what the, the confession is saying, as particular laws in their shape, in their form, in their absolutes, they are gone. They're abrogated. They're no, they're no longer, we're not under obligation to the civil laws of the Mosaic Covenant. However, we can see in them general equity, meaning justice or fairness that goes beyond the particular nation of Israel to the general population of the world. So general meaning to everybody, to all people. Equity, the modern translations call it general justice. Basically, there are, the way I phrase it is there are moral principles that we can and ought to find within the, the commandments other than the Ten Commandments. They would say that New Testament passages that appear to abolish the law are really talking about the traditions of the elders. They're talking about legalism. They're talking about a misuse of the law, not the law itself. Because this side will point to a lot of verses that say, but the law is gone. We're no longer under the law, we're under grace, right? The law has passed away, it's become obsolete. So they say, see, it's gone. And Theonomists would say, no, not too fast. We've got to interpret this a little better. They would see things like in the, in the civil laws, uh, like purity and separation, things that come from the holiness code, Leviticus 17 to 26. Those continue in principle, but not in their original form. And a lot of what I've said so far, a lot of us would agree with, right? Even if you've never called yourself a theonomist, I don't think anything so far would be too controversial. But they might, I, I, it's a spectrum, right? They start to apply more and more and more maybe than the average Presbyterian. They, these guys that I'm talking about on this side of the board, these are the mild ones. We'll get to hardcore in a bit. They, they, would, they would cling to the Westminster. They quote the Westminster. They say, see, don't kick me out of your camp. I'm in your camp. Last week, we dealt with a lot of different covenant theology positions and how they kind of get their positions. Here, we don't have to deal with any of that. They're, they're, they're agreed with our glasses of covenant theology. They're just using it and extending it in more and more ways along the spectrum. So they're going to take this general equity clause, it's called, uh, further and further, and want to apply more and more. They would distinguish sins and crimes. And so a lot of things, when you, when you hear discussions among theonomists, been doing for six months now, been wild. Um, that, that's a big thing to them. When you go to the Old Testament, they say, see, here's a sin, um, and then this one is a sin and a crime. And so they would say, we want to keep the sin. We think that continues. We don't think the crimes continue. We think that did fall away with political Israel. So, for instance, I, I mentioned it the other week, adultery. Um, adultery. So you have a, in the Old Testament, right, what's the punishment of adultery? It's death. And so you can't automatically say, oh, you're a theonomist, you must think we should stone an adulteress. Well, some would say that, but some would say no, that that would be applied in the church as excommunication, right? An unrepentant adulteress would be removed from the holy assembly, but it would be not at a physical crime level. Um, but you'll see that these guys start to say no. Why would you change that as well? So just because someone uses the label theonomy, don't assume they're over here, I guess is my, is my main point. So Old Testament death sentence equals New Testament excommunication for these guys. 
And they would say, or at least some would say, Christians should follow these things. As individuals, we as Christians ought to open the Mosaic Code, look at how we might apply these. Um, and I'll get to some of the verses. But they, and they would say civil governments would be wise to follow these things. You would be a wise and a just and a righteous nation if you would act a lot more like Israel in the Old Testament. But there's no obligation to a secular government, they would say. Now, people who would put themselves more on this side would be Bonson, although some of his opponents, detractors, would disagree. They think he's further over this way than he says. Uh, Doug Wilson would claim that. Uh, and there's a lot of other names out there that I'm not that familiar with. Here's some of the verses they use. Deuteronomy 22. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Right? But we don't, they would not agree that we should go to everyone's home and make sure you have a parapet on your roof. No, that, what did that have to do with? You are responsible for the safety of your family and your guests, your visitors. You ought to be taking uh, attention uh, to those things. But they'd also say that even in the Old Testament, no one went around to, to each Jewish home and made sure there was a parapet. But if someone got hurt, now there's issues to deal with, right? That's, that's when the kind of the consequences of your, quote, sin take place. Doesn't mean we have to go be roof inspectors, per se. Deuteronomy 25, I talked about this. You shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Well, Paul applies that twice. Two, two Gentile groups. He quotes from a judicial law from the Old Testament. And he applies it to the wages of a gospel laborer. People who serve the altar, <laughs> serve the pulpit, I should say, um, have the right to live off of that service. And he ties it to an animal husbandry law. Don't muzzle an ox. I mean, who in the right mind could have been reading through Deuteronomy and thought of that? Oh yeah, one day there's going to be a gospel that we're going to preach and we're going to apply this to them. So theonomists say we don't, we don't try hard enough to find what God might be saying in some of these Old Testament laws. In fact, Paul says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? 1 Timothy 1, now we know that the law is good. This is one of their big verses. We know that the law is good. And the only the law they could have possibly been talking about at that point would be the Mosaic law. We, so I'll, I'll say interpretive here. We know that the Mosaic law is good, is how they would say it. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murders, for sexually immoral, many practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So they get a few things out of this. Number one, they're saying the law is specifically not for Christians. It's for the unbelievers. It's for the people who are wicked, the godless, and the profane. That's what the Mosaic law is for. So that's interesting. And they say it's in accordance with the gospel in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So there's no, there should be none of this deep divide between law and gospel, as a Lutheran would say. No. The law and the gospel are... They believe those categories. They believe you're justified by faith alone, uh, grace alone, by Christ alone, not justified by the law. They're very emphatic on that, so don't put that, that label on them. However, they think we've made too much of a division. It, let's not drive too much of a stake. The law and the gospel are in accordance in our teaching. 
uh, driving people to Christ. They would say then basically that the, the distinction between civil and moral starts to crumble. There's a lot more moral in the civil than we might give it credit for. Um, like in our view, we, we make a little sharper distinction between civil and moral. They say no, it's not, they agree in principle that there's moral principles within a shape that might change, but they see more and more moral and that distinction starts to blur. Matthew 5 is a big one, and that's really Bonson's one of his, one of their biggest passages. If you want to study this thing, you're going to have to do with Matthew 5. And we've brought up Matthew 5 every week, and it's a tough one. And I went through Matthew uh, 5 through 7 last April, March to May time frame. So if you don't go back and listen to those, we kind of ha- did a little workshop exercise on this stuff. It's tough because in the one place he says, no jot or tittle of the law will pass away. And then he says, well, you've heard this, but I'm going to tell you this. He seems to make changes to the law. He's got six examples there. Theonomus would say, notice that that command follows what he says about being salt and light in the world. We're the salt of the world, right? Uh, we're, we're the light of the world. No one hides a light under the basket. And then he jumps into an exposition of the law. So they say, the way you're salt and light is to establish and confirm these Old Testament laws. In fact, Bonson w- went so far as to say, the way that your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees is to teach all of the civil law of God. That, I, in my opinion, should irk you a little bit. Because <laughs> I think, for sure, the only way we our righteousness surpasses that of the law of Pharisees is that we have Christ's righteousness. Not all theonomists agree with him on that. 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexuality, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Again, there's, there's an implicit appeal to, you know, to basically, I don't know if that would be considered an incest law, probably, like what relations you're allowed to marry. But it's not explicitly in the Ten Commandments, per se. It depends if he means, like, so someone's married here and they're having adultery, or if it goes beyond that. Like, the bottom line is, there's all these verses that seem to imply an implicit authority that still resides from the Old Testament. And that's to a Gentile church. All right. If I'm losing some of you, because I feel like I am, because I'm losing myself, the, the, the references are there, because this is, this is really a deep study. You've got to go through these passages and take them um, and study through them. I just, I just want to give you examples. Like they, I, They've got an argument. I'm telling you, I, they have a stronger argument than I ever thought they had. They have an argument. And, and let, your, let your position be challenged, right? To divide rightly the, the word of truth. All right, let's go to more of the hardcore side. So as you take this spectrum more extreme, maybe extreme shows my position, um, basically civil law is our moral law. There's no threefold nature of the law, moral, civil, ceremony. There's a twofold, moral and ceremonial. I don't know if anyone would claim that, but that's kind of what they start to sound like. Like the onus is on you to show why that civil law doesn't apply the way it was written. Some of them even fall, start to follow the dietary laws, and that kind of makes sense. Once you're going to keep everything in the Mosaic law, unless it's specifically taken away, you can see them taking more and more and more. But not all. I don't think you think most follow the dietary laws. They would want to continue the criminal penalties. If the Old Testament gave it a death sentence, 
we continue to give it a death sentence. Now, they're not saying that they, as a Christian minister, have the right to do that, but the government ought to do that. We as a church ought to be advocating for um, death for adultery, for instance. Stoning of homosexuals. Some would, some would even keep the form of death. Um, and they, they say that, is, that ought to be the Christian position. And as you get political and you, you get involved in the state, then you want to enforce those things and advocate for them as a church. And they would say the church ought to be taking time out of their week to be doing such things. They would say civil governments are obligated to follow these laws if they know it or not, and they will be judged for not uh, instituting the righteous and wise standards that God has given us through his revelation. So they do obviously tend to be a little more political, involved in politics. Um, what I'm going to do in the next couple weeks is, is talk about one kingdom theology, two kingdom theologies, old terms, but basically what, what is the relationship of the church and the state? And we have a lot of positions on this in our Reformed history. And, and because, depending on what your role is as a church, ought to, you know, the, we have to show how much priority and time and resources you give to those efforts. Particularly as we're still considering what kind of Las Vegas City ministry to be doing in our church with our n- new building, right? We're going to have to decide what kind of ministry is that. And, and some of these discussions get, uh, can help us or limited us at least. I won't get into Reconstructionism or Romans 1. Here's an example. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees, talking about all mankind in Romans 1, all the world ought to know these things by the light of creation and their conscience. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only give approval, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice. So they would say, see, disobedience to parents deserves to die, and the whole world knows it. That's an example of why they say the, the civil penalties were not confined to the nation of Israel. That's a moral commandment to be deserving of death for disobedience to parents. That's the kind of way that they would make certain links uh, through New Testament verses. All right, so with our time left, I just want to give some my own take um, Again, someone who's not new, who is new at all this, uh, not that steeped in it, but here, here's some of the beneficial takeaways I think that we can all or mostly agree that are actually good, that we don't want to just discount everything these guys have to say. Number one, they're very big on scriptural authority. I mean, they, they want you to show them why this scripture no longer applies. I think that's a fair point. I think dispensationalists have a good point when they talk about the continuation of the prophecies to Israel. What, we need to have a good grid and not just sweep away those things. We need to have a good grid that says why we don't think we need to apply it with the way it seems to be originally written. I think that's fair. They're very resistant to situational ethics. You know, you, you can give some really hard, they, they kind of come off as hard sometimes because they say, well, here's a really complicated scenario. What would you do? And so I'm going to follow this law. I mean, it, it seems harsh, but it's, it's God's law. And, and so they're they're resistant to things that might draw us away from God's law and God's word. And, and that's a good thing. Like, we want to we stand on God's word. And I think it's a great question to ask. Everything God has ever said, including every command he's ever given, wh- what is God displaying about his character as a creator? 
What is he saying about our relationship to him as a creature? Or even more importantly, as a child of God? That's a great question to ask and, and to ponder with every, like, nothing he ever has said was arbitrary, right? We've talked about natural law and positive law. Natural is like moral law. It naturally exists in the character of God. And then there's positive law, where it's not moral. It's not, it's not necessary for God's character, but God still gives certain commands for a purpose. He told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the, he had a purpose in that, right? He, he, it, it was to set up the fall, in a sense, but so God has never been arbitrary. So it's always good to ask, why did God give this? And maybe we won't always have an answer. Why did God give command like, if a man and a woman are in a fight and she grabs him by his genitals and crushes them, we're going to cut off her hand. Why did he say that? You can say with my modern Western sensibilities, that doesn't seem right. They have a great argument. Well, why? Who are you to say that's not a right law? I mean, if an atheist said that to me, I'd say, well, what standard do you use? According to you, there's no God, there is no good and evil, so why is that an evil act? But I don't really have a great argument. Like, I kind of agree, that seems weird. Why would God do such a thing? That's a good question to ask. Slavery, slavery is in the Bible. If you're not ready to deal with that and to be able to answer skeptics, it might shatter your own faith. It's certainly not going to be convincing to them that you don't have a good grid of how, how to answer these things. And I certainly wouldn't want to crush your own faith. Well, maybe, maybe this book isn't what I thought it was. That's the kind of things I want to buttress us against. And I think theonomists have some good, good things to say on that. We should not be ashamed of anything in the Bible for those things I just mentioned. I am naturally ashamed of some of these things, and it's wrong. And I, I, I know that it's wrong, so I, I, don't, I just want to come back to it. Even if we don't understand it, we uphold it, that God did say that. And how I apply it today, I have to wrestle with. We need a microphone. Can someone get a microphone ready? You, all right. Is it on? Is it on? Yes. Um, you've done a really outstanding job. I appreciate the way yet. you've mapped this out. <laughs> However, um, people like Greg Bonson, who you put now more on the toward the middle of theonomy. Yeah, he might, would claim this, but I think that, a lot of people would put that it here. might be correct. But I went to seminary in 1984, where he had been fired the year before in yep. 1983. And he was as far to the continuity side as you could be. He would be what you called hardcore. Yeah. That happens in the development, the history and development of Christian doctrine. Because you have your continuity crowd, you have your discontinuity crowd. They are, that's the initial first blush, I've discovered something kind of place to be. Over time, it becomes more nuanced because they get criticized. You got progressive dispensationalists now. Why? Because they've heard the arguments from the other side and said, oh, maybe we need to move. Sure. Bonson heard his own reformed brothers critique his system, and he began to move. You could say it's woke. He woke up a little bit. And so the progressive dispensationalists wake up, but that's how history Christian doctrine develops. I'm not going to be so arrogant to say to be in the middle of all that is where we are. We do need to listen. But one last thing I'll say, and I'll, I'll be quiet because I know we're running out of time. When Paul uses the word nomos, law, 
there are four or five things he can mean by that. Yep. To and say everybody it's agrees. Mosaic law every time is just exegetically dishonest and, and not doing your work. So that's that's part of what needs to be said. But outside of that, you've done a really good job. Thanks. I don't I didn't hear a critique of anything I said. <laughs> I'm not claiming to be uh, Bonson. Okay, oh. now time for some ad hominem. Okay, we do have another page here, but go ahead. That, that was already some ad Having hominem. Let's no, have some more. On, one of I can't hear you. The, their focus is on themselves, their performance toward the law, without looking at Jesus. I mean, they can preach sermon and beat you over the head with the law without giving you the relief of Christ. That's my... I understand their arguments on the law, but to the extent that they're not leading you to the gospel, it's to me it's a huge issue. And I think that's the bigger issue in theonomy, where you know sermon after sermon after sermon is pounding you on the head with jot and tittle of the civil law. That so that's my experience. That's my bigger concern. I understand their arguments, and a lot of that's philosophical and maybe somewhat influenced by their millennial hermeneutic, but... Um, maybe. Let's not go there, though. That's all I got to say. Again, I, there is, I'm not saying not to look at the fruit. Um, I think these are good examples. That if There might be something in it if it always seems to slide a certain direction. But I still say we need to deal with the arguments. That's what I'll still say. Um, I think that... Some of the Old Testament criminal sanctions are pretty harsh, and I think it, there's something in that, that sin ought to be treated pretty, pretty seriously, right? Sometimes we get away from the thought that, oh, sin is that important, grace, 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 I don't care about sin anymore. I, th I think there's some good things there to bring us back to, sin is something we ought to root out, and, and that's in our system. Our theological system supports that, so I'm not saying anything that's against it's just we can tend to maybe cover things over a bit too easily. Um, and there's a lot of room for debate. I, so those challenges, those first four, we're not going to have time to go through these. Those first four are more questions I would ask. They're, they're my questions. I'm not really challenges. As I study theonomy, if I sat down with a theonomist, these are the kind of things I'd want to know. Like, how do you, you say all this stuff about continuity, but you still get rid of the ceremonial law. Some of you still get rid of the sanctions. Like, so... And you, you observe a Sunday Sabbath, so I still don't see a, a nice, easy grid. Like, you're accusing me of something that I get. I'm, I'm open to that discussion. And yet, I think you could be accused from people who are even further to the left than you. And so, I, again, I'm still looking for maybe a little uh, safer grid to use. And maybe I'm not going to get it, right? Maybe it's just going to be nuanced from here to eternity, and that's okay. I'll let, I'll let, the, I'll let it go. All right. I'll need to stop there for time, so let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again. You have depths of your word. Um, we want to swim in them. We don't want to run from them. And yet help us to have wisdom in how much time and energy to give to such things. Um, help us to keep the main things the main things. Help us to delight in your law. Help us not to be ashamed of your word. Help us to humble ourselves that you are wiser than us and there are just things we're not going to understand 
And in the end, we will hold you up as the beacon of light to the, a lost world. Um, help us be genuine in our approach with the gospel and in our apologetics and talking to unbelievers um, that we don't have all the answers. And, and even as Mark expressed, pray that we would never lose sight of the centrality of the gospel or the cross of Christ, the need for justification, for Christ's righteousness, not our own. We could get all these things down uh, and nail it and be able to teach them, and it is, it's rubbish to you. It's, it's worthless and worthless, worse than worthless. Help us to never cling to our own righteousness. Uh, save us from such a temptation. And now, Father, as we go to worship you, may we do so in spirit and in truth. May we sing praises uh, to your name, lifting up uh, those sacrifices of praise. Be with Tim in his preaching and reward his labor of uh, work this week. Be with um, Marco's family. We look forward to remembering him, his life, and his resurrection this week. I'll be with many who are affected by COVID and, and other issues, job issues and school issues and so many things. This life is frail. Um, we will all soon, in a moment, be with you. May, we, uh, may that encourage us to live our life well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.